Grab your Bibles, open them up, and we've been working through uh, uh, the book of Acts. We're in chapter 8 today, and uh, we've been going through it chapter by chapter uh, as we see this, this unfolding of God bringing the gospel to all nations and, and this gospel is being carried in the hearts and spoken on the lips of, uh, of God's children to these various places. Uh, these early events... Uh, I love because it's kind of like looking at something that eventually arrives on your front door. Uh, if you've ever seen those videos where you, you watch and eventually shows up there, this, this is the gospel first going out, and, and sometimes we forget that where it went out from here, eventually it arrived in your life one way or another. Uh, and that's how it got uh, to this place in the world and this time in history. Uh, so last week we saw uh, Stephen. He was brought before the council because of his faith in Christ. And he gives this verbal defense, <clears throat> and, then, and then he does that, that thing where he, uh, he called his accusers stiff-necked people uh, and uncircumcised of heart and ear, uh, and you can imagine that doesn't go well. Um, and then he tells them, you know what, I, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and that's the last straw. Uh, they end up uh, killing him, pelting him with stones until Stephen is absolutely dead. Uh, he becomes the first martyr, the first Christian to be put to death for their beliefs in Christ. Uh, and our text today is focusing on what happens next. What's the result of that? Uh, and so as, as we read the passage this morning, we're going to start all the way back in chapter 7, verse 54. It only adds six verses. Um, and, and that's right at the death of Stephen. And I, and I want to do that so that we can have fresh in our minds what's just happened so that we understand why, why the Christians respond the way they do in our text today. Uh, why they move so quickly. So let's, let's read, starting in chapter 7, uh, verse 54. And when they had heard these things, they were enraged, um, they, being, they being his accusers, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, it can be hard to relate to our brothers and our sisters across the globe. Uh, it can be even harder to relate to our brothers and sisters across time. 
Help us to hear our history in this text. Help us to see how you give gospel progress, even from what seems to be like a place of failure. How you bring gospel comfort to your children through the pain of your other children by meeting their need for salvation. Give us a vision for our life that is beyond a mere escape from both physical and emotional pain. Lord, make us to trust your word this day. We ask this in the name of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I titled this sermon, Alexander Worships His God. Most of you probably don't even ever see what the title of a sermon is. Um, Some of you are very astute, and you probably saw in the text today that there is no mention of anyone named Alexander. Uh, No one in there at all. Uh, It's actually a reference to a piece of graffiti that was discovered in in 1857. Uh, The graffiti was made somewhere around 200 A.D. um, on a wall in Thessalonica. You probably recognize the name of that city. There's two books in our Bible that are named after that. They're letters from Paul, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, Those were letters that he wrote to the church there in Thessalonica. Uh, In Scripture, we often see how the church loved each other. We get to see that fairly well. But sometimes we forget that they did so in the midst of a culture that mocked their faith uh, and which was often antagonistic against, uh, against their beliefs. Uh, This graffiti here, um, this piece of graffiti was scratched on a wall, and and it depicts a man who is kneeling in front of a cross. Uh, There's also a man on the cross, uh, but instead of a human head, he has the head of a donkey. And and below it, written in Latin, are the words, Alexander worships his God. We don't know who Alexander is. Uh, There's no history to explain that, but it's it's clear that he's a Christian who's being ridiculed because of his faith uh, in a crucified God. It's not the worst bit of persecution that you'll ever see in history. It's not even close to what we see in our text today. Uh, But it's always been a a reminder to me uh, that my hope is in a faith that many times in history has been the minority view of the culture of of which it's in. Uh, It's a reminder that that Christians have existed in the margins of society and even been persecuted uh, physically, academically, economically, socially, Uh, at many points in history, and yet God has used those times to further the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. So in our text today, we we see the first instance here uh, of the church spreading like a a violently kicked dandelion uh, hit, and and it just spreads out, and before you know it, it's multiplied. Uh, First thing we see here is this phrase, Saul approved of his execution. Uh, In case you don't know, Saul is the guy who becomes the Apostle Paul. There's a huge, significant change that ever happens, uh, that happens here. Uh, So if we ever thought there was, there was someone, you know, think about this. If you ever think there's someone in your life who is so hardened to the gospel that God couldn't possibly give them faith in Jesus Christ, Saul right here is proof that we are absolutely wrong to think that. Uh, Here we also get a glimpse of just his hatred for Christians. Absolutely hates them. Um, you see it by his approval of stoning Stephen to death. And then after Stephen is buried and mournful, uh, we see that his death begins this new era of persecution on, on Christians, uh, particularly in Jerusalem. Verse 3 tells us that Saul was ravaging the church. Uh, this matches what, what Saul or Paul himself writes in Galatians 1.13, where he says, perse- uh, says he persecuted the church violently and he tried to destroy it. So you can see that's, that's where he's at. Uh, 
I think it's hard for us to get our, our minds around this sometimes. It seems so far away, so distant, and, and so it's hard to really understand this. But suppose Travis got dragged into court today, which would be convenient since it's right across the street. Uh, and he was ultimately dragged right back outside of the court, and, and he's beaten to death simply because he was a Christian. Uh, what if the government responded by doing nothing? Uh, you could imagine how much more power that would give people who hated Christians uh, to go after other Christians, to, to try to stomp this down and, and, and put an end to this. Uh, it says here that Saul was going house to house and physically dragging men and women to prison. Uh, this persecution now is, is significant in that uh, it is against normal, everyday Christians. It's not just the leadership in the church at this point. And so, uh, and so you've got to understand, if people are knocking on doors and they're dragging Christians to prison here in Manhattan or in Fort Riley or on the, uh, on the dorms on campus, uh, in that moment, do you sit and just wait for the knock at the door? Or do you get moving? Um, do you get out of there? Probably make an argument for either. Uh, these Christians, though, in fear for their lives, they leave Jerusalem. They get out of there. Uh, and the text adds an exception telling us that the apostles stay behind. Uh, we don't learn the reason for this thing, but we do know that out of the gates of Jerusalem goes the gospel in the hearts of, of many who trust in Jesus for their salvation. They're leaving the comforts of home. They're leaving their jobs. They're leaving, leaving these church leaders where they first heard the gospel spoken to them. Uh, and verse 1 tells us where they went. It says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That word scattered, that's like, like seed being scattered. It kind of goes everywhere. It ends up everywhere. And I, and I love that picture because uh, from the scattering of seed becomes new life, right? And so as we see this, from the scattering of these Christians comes new life in, in Christ we're going to see. And this is amazing because remember up to this point, the gospel has been preached exclusively in Jerusalem, one city in one country, in one little part of the world, uh, exclusively there. And yet, Jesus in the Great Commission makes clear that the gospel needs to spread outside of Jerusalem to every nation. How strange then that persecution is the catalyst for everyday Christians to go to other cities and, and bring the gospel with them. Do you notice what regions they went to there if you look at that text? What's it say? Judea, Samaria. You remember back in Acts 1? Uh, before Jesus ascends to the Father, uh, he's talking to the apostles, and, and he says this to them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to all the end of the earth. You see, what Jesus said would come true is actually coming true in this moment, but I bet they never imagined that the way it was going to come through, the way God would accomplish this, was going to be through people hating them by their pain, uh, by fears that, that come from persecution. See, sometimes we just can't see what God is doing from a wide enough angle to be able to see the good that he is accomplishing by it. Uh, this is similar to the story of Joseph. You remember that. Uh, his brothers hate him. Uh, they sell him in slavery, and he goes to Egypt. And in, in Genesis 50, 20, when, when he's in a position to actually help his family out because of a famine going on, he says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive. I love how, how clear our text here is about the apostles not, not going with them. 
uh, that they stay back in Jerusalem. Because what that means is that it was these new believers who were most instrumental in the progress of the Great Commission in this time. Uh, Another way to put this was there weren't pastors and and elders, but it was members of the congregation who were the biggest part in, in bringing the gospel to those who need to hear it. And I absolutely believe that's still true today. See, 99% of, of Christians, this is a made-up statistic, by the way, just in case you want to quote me on it, uh, are not in vocational ministry, and I absolutely praise God for that. You see, you have, you have connections to people in your life that I will very likely never come in contact with. In your jobs, in your social circles, in your children's social circles, and whatever weird hobbies you have, Um, Plus, the spread of the gospel is best accomplished, like we see here, as everyday Christians speak of their amazing Savior. See, if we're going to see unbelievers come to faith today uh, in in, in the same way, it's going to happen in the same ordinary way that we see it happening here. The, you know, prayer for the lost and simple sharing of the gospel, the the hope that we have in Christ. And and that's what we see here in verse 4. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They're proclaiming the gospel. Now, be careful when you look at this. Don't think preaching like what I'm doing right now. Don't think sermon or formal idea of preaching. Think witnessing. Think speaking the word of God to people, uh, to anyone. Uh, The fact that they do this really is kind of strange because uh, they just had to flee their homes because of preaching the word of God, right? They they believe in Jesus, uh, and that's what they're proclaiming, and they have to leave. So imagine again, if we had to leave Manhattan and go to Topeka because we were so afraid of our lives here. You know, be honest. In that moment, and and you're starting to interact with these strangers, what are you going to do? Are you going to preach the word? Are you going to talk about Christ? Or in that moment, are you thinking, I'm going to lay low and, and maybe just keep my life for now? I guess I, I see then, I think, why does the gospel make them so vocal and, and overwhelmingly make us so silent? In fact, even my suggesting that you, that you go about talking about Jesus outside of here might give you anxiety. It might give you guilt because you're thinking, boy, I haven't done that much. I feel that too. Um, you might even be frustrated at me for talking about this. Like, come on, no more guilt. Uh, so, so understand, I don't want to pressure you to speak the gospel. But I think a text like this, and what I really hope comes about it, is that you are freed to speak the gospel. And there's a very different mentality in those two things between being pressured to do so and being freed to do so. Uh, If you're the type that can walk into a room and just sit down and explain the gospel to somebody, um, great, do it, right? That'd be amazing. A few years ago, Lauren and I had to go to this got to go to this church plan assessment thing in Atlanta, um, and after the end of the week of, of being guinea pigs and evaluated like crazy, we went out with this, this other couple, um, and, and we went out and we went into a liquor store, because that's what you do after you've been evaluated all week long. Uh, and our, our new friend, this guy JC, um, who had just been slammed for not being evangelistic enough, uh, goes up to the guy behind the counter and says, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord? And it caught me off guard. I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing this. Okay. Uh, it, it was awesome. They had this great conversation, and I just sat there and watched, you know, thinking, boy, I wish I could do that like that. Uh, his boldness to talk about Jesus, even to the guy behind the counter at the liquor store, was just awesome. But, but to be fair, there really aren't many people like JC. And that's okay. Uh, God's given us many ways to speak about Christ to the world that we are in. 
Uh, and so we must be able to explain the gospel. We absolutely must. Like, you've got to be able to explain what it is you believe so that you can share it with someone. But it doesn't have to be done in some memorized, uh, you know, presentation kind of style. Uh, so if, if we're going to learn, though, to, to speak up when silence is an option, if we're going to learn to do that, we're going to have to start by answering some simple questions for ourselves that I don't know that we think about enough. Uh, things like, who is Jesus? And I don't mean the Sunday school answer. I know that's easy. Um, but you start thinking, what has he done for me? Well, you know, how has Jesus loved us? Why, why do I even want my friends to have faith in Jesus? You ought to think through these questions, you know. How do we get past our, our anxiety then to speak up in these moments? Because that anxiety is real. And, and, and here's the thing. We can't really just will ourselves to do it. I mean, you can, but that's going to be so awkward. Um, you know, and here's how we do it. We don't fear the weight uh, of the guilt that we're going to feel if we don't talk about Jesus. That usually doesn't result in a real, uh, a real effective method. Because uh, that's a heavy burden, and that's a heavy burden that Jesus has not asked us to carry. Uh, and instead, let me suggest this, that we remind ourselves just how amazing Christ is. And that means closeness with Jesus. That means tasting and seeing that Jesus is good. Um, let me use Bluebell for an example, okay? Bluebell's been missing from Kansas for eight months. How many of you knew that? Tell me you know this, Okay. So Bluebell's been missing for eight months, and I, I miss it. Uh, if you'd asked me a week ago, a week and a half ago, um, I would have told you, Bluebell's the best ice cream, and then I probably would have moved on. Uh, because that would have been me just speaking from memory. Like, I just, I remember that, that's the right answer, that's what you say. Uh, however, last week was Laura's birthday, and her friend Carolyn uh, shipped her this carton that had four, four half gallons of Bluebell. We come home, and it's just sitting on the, on the front porch, and, and it was wonderful to see. Uh, but to celebrate, and, and so we got to actually eat it, and it was so good. I forgot how good it was. It was, it was better than any other ice cream in the world, and I don't care if you disagree with me. Um, I don't care if you think Blue Bunny or Eddie's or Ben and Jerry's or whatever other trash you think's good. Um, nothing is better than Blue Bell ice cream, and I love it so much, and I really do want all of you to experience it, so long as it doesn't take it away from me. Um, and you see, here's what I saw from this. This, this recent enjoyment of Bluebell ha has made speaking about it so natural. Because it's, it's fresh in my mind. It's something I'm, I'm actually experiencing in the, in the moment. It is so fresh because I've just tasted how wonderful it is. And so I don't have to think, well, you know, I'm from Texas, so I guess I should tell you about Bluebell. Uh, that's kind of what we're supposed to do. Uh, no, because I've tasted it and it is so good. And as much as I, I love Bluebell, Jesus is much better than Bluebell. Um, but sometimes it's been so long since we've tasted of the goodness of Jesus that we're just going off of memory. You know what? I'm supposed to tell you he's good, so he's good. Um, C.S. Lewis has this, this now famous quote uh, about how our love of something or someone just, just pours out in public praise for it. He says, he says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or fear or boring others, deliber uh, others is deliberately brought it to check. It says the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, like Romeo praising Juliet. Uh, readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, Horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, 
uh, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicals or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interferes, praise almost seems to be the inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? She says, the Psalms are telling everyone to praise God and are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care for. See, our, our hope in, in praising God in our conversation is that others might, might join us in doing so in praising God. And what we see in our text today is that, that the mission of God went wherever these early Christians went. Um, and we don't know what they said, and I kind of love that we don't know what, our, what they said, right? Um, our text doesn't mention it at all. It, it, it could have been as simple as someone saying, say, uh, why'd you move here from Jerusalem, you know? Uh, and they respond, well, because Samaria sounded better than prison or death. Um, or, or any way you might answer that that really points back to God. You know, it's a simple question like that might be answered about just speaking about Jesus in the process. And, and maybe it's spread after that as one neighbor told, told each other, so, you know, those new people, they believe the Messiah has come. And, and they think he's some guy named Jesus. And suddenly they're interested to know, okay, I want to know more about this. Uh, maybe someone just asked you one time, you know, so how's your day? And, you, and, and that's an opportunity to mention God as part of it. You know, my day started pretty rough. But, you know, in God's providence, I got to talk to an old friend. I was encouraged. The day went well. Um, anything like that. And so let me encourage you to, to speak of God as real. Uh, whether or not the person speaking to you agrees. I think sometimes we just want to mirror back to people what we know they believe. You know, they, you have a secular worldview, so I will just respond back to you in your worldview. Instead of inviting them into a, a true worldview where God exists. So, you know, share your life in a way that doesn't hide the ways that you see God at work. Um, so, however it happened, though, and we don't know, however it happened, there were enough people who were interested in, in what was being said uh, to be called a crowd. Uh, I don't know what constitutes a crowd at this point in history, but there's a crowd. And so, Philip, one of the seven men that we saw before that were chosen to serve widows, he travels to Samaria and he comes to speak the gospel to him. Uh, and when I read this, uh, when I read this, I was curious, you know, so how far did he have to travel? Where is Samaria compared to, uh, to that? And so I asked Google. Google informed me it's a two-hour and 48-minute drive via Highway 6. I don't think that's real accurate. Uh, I really don't know what vehicle Google thought I was driving since it's only 35 miles, you know, straight to beginning to end. Um, anyway, Philip does go down and he preaches Christ to them. And, and remember, remember, Christ is not his last name. I know we forget that sometimes. H is not his middle name. Uh, and, and it's, it's just a title that means Messiah or Savior. And, and he's speaking mostly to people there that are waiting, that are hoping, that, that have this idea that a Messiah is coming. And so um, God does these signs through Philip. And, and these signs, he's casting out unclean spirits. He's healing sick and paralyzed people. Um, and so people listen to what he has to say. I think it's easy for us to just wish, you know, why? I mean, I wish we had those miraculous gifts. Uh, you know, if I could heal people of, of cancer and make paralyzed people walk again, it would certainly make preaching the gospel a little easier, is, is kind of how I think. Um, you know, it would get them to show up and just listen to anything I said. But, uh, but what we see here is God has provided his people with, with what was needed to gain the ear of the people that he intends to redeem. Don't, don't underestimate the, the gift of the Spirit today, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it, it might be kindness to someone. It might be generosity with, with 
how God has blessed you. It might be hospitality or even patience for someone who's undeserving of it. Uh, you, you might be shocked how much simple fruit of the Spirit and your life actually serve to put you in a place to speak about Jesus to listening ears. Um, no, you know, you're not healing people, uh, but the love that you can show by the power of the Spirit is still a rare thing for people to witness in this day. Um, the fact then that, that the Samaritans listen to what he says um, it's very significant. You see, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans, really hated each other. Uh, you might remember even when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman uh, at the well in John 4, uh, she says to him, as, as he comes up after he asks for a drink, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And she adds, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There were so many cultural and theological disputes between them. And yet, Philip preaches the gospel, which is truly unique because it is this beautiful news for people of any culture, of any history, any situation. It crosses over absolutely every barrier that can stand in the way, every man-made barrier that we might have built up. It's this message that... Everyone, everywhere, is a sinner, and yet God is a God of unparalleled mercy. Right after the, the well-known verse, John 3.16, you see it at every sporting event, um, is John 3.17, how much you probably figured out. Uh, but it says this, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Philip preaches the gospel, it's not to condemn them, for where they are. It's to call them to faith in Jesus Christ. See, as we, as we walk with, with Jesus, we might find that many changes need to happen in our life, and, and, and we're going to need the strength of the Holy Spirit for that to happen, for those, those changes. But the proclaiming of the gospel, he, in proclaiming the gospel, he doesn't condemn them. He's offering them refuge, refuge for a weary people. See, in this text, um, Luke never mentions how it ends, right? You kind of, kind of wonder, so what happened? Uh, the joy in verse 8 gives us some idea that things went well. Um, and, and then a few chapters later in Acts eleven twenty one, Luke actually references back to this moment. He tells us that a great number who believe turned to the Lord. Uh, and I, I mention that because I, I think the other reason that, that we're often silent, the other reason we don't talk about Jesus to people is that we don't think it will work. We don't think people will hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Uh, one of my favorite things about the, the church membership interviews is, is hearing the stories of how people have come to hear the gospel and how they came to believe the gospel. Uh, there is so much variety in that. Uh, those who were raised in the covenant community and you know, never know a day that they haven't believed, uh, but also those who went through a time in their life where they had doubts and struggles and, and questions. Uh, those who thought, you know, thought Christianity was absolutely foolish for a period of time and for simpletons. Um, even those who were antagonistic towards Christianity. And, and one of the beautiful things about hearing those stories is, is that we learn that God can save even the most bitter, the most skeptical, hard-hearted man or woman on the planet. And when you hear those stories, man, it gives you hope. And, and here's the deal. This congregation and every congregation out there is proof of just that because it's made up of people who have been in each of those stages. Uh, so then verse 8 Look at that. Verse 8 would seem very unlikely given the way this began. Persecution, 
Um, verse 8 says simply, so there was much joy in that city. Isn't that the way, or isn't the way that God works fantastic? The apostles and the congregation in Jerusalem, they have received the Great Commission. They have heard Jesus tell them, you're going to take the gospel to Samaria and Judea, and they have absolutely no plan to accomplish it. You know, things were going well in Jerusalem. Next thing they know, their friend Stephen is being stoned to death and he's killed. It feels like this huge backward step, like, wow, something has gone wrong. Where is God? But even at this moment, in the sorrow and the persecution in Jerusalem, this, this leads the Christians to fleeing. And God uses this fleeing, uses this miserable situation to deliver the joy of the gospel to people far away in a faraway city. Um, this was collective persecution. They suffered as a group. Uh, however, I don't want us to lose sight that God brings gospel hope to some people through the painful experiences of his children. Uh, even on smaller levels. Even pain outside of persecution can work this way. You, you might face medical or financial struggles, and God uses that as a way for you to speak gospel into someone's life somewhere else. Uh, that's one of the reasons James 1-2 can say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. Because our joy is found in the gospel, not in the comforts of this life. Um, I want to read to you a quote. It's from uh, Samuel Lamb. Uh, Samuel Lamb sounds very American sounding, but he was actually a Chinese pastor. Uh, he died in 2013, just two years ago, and at that point he was 88 years old. Um, Samuel Lamb spent 22 years of his life in prison. That's 25% of his life in prison simply because of his Christianity and the way that it differed with the Chinese government. Uh, he was once asked about the difficulty of persecution, and he had this to say. He said, in America... The church has experienced prosperity and is growing weaker. In China, the church has experienced persecution and is growing stronger. Persecution is better than prosperity. We don't want it to happen. We don't want persecution, but we ought not be afraid of the prospect that we might live under persecution. Uh, we've lived in such a, Christ, a Christianized culture for so long that I, I think we can scarcely make sense out of a verse like 2 Timothy 3.12, which says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't even make sense. Uh, you know, we, we want to read that with some sort of an of a exception clause, you know, that all will be persecuted except me, uh, or something like that. See, one aspect of the early Christians is that uh, they were marginalized. Uh, you know what marginalized means? Uh, look at your Bible. You've got your Bible in front of you. You notice all the important stuff is right down, right down the middle, right? Uh, right in the center of, of it is where it all is. And to the left and the right, uh, you have what are called margins, empty sections. You might have some uh, references there. I've got some references. Uh, but that's, that's the less important stuff. That's what goes in the margins, Few really pay attention to them. Most people with references just read right past them. Uh, it's where those ideas and those people go who are not powerful. They are not influential. That's, that's where they're placed. Um, and now you can, you can hear that and become greatly discouraged. Or you can hear that and realize that the early church lived in the margins um, also. And, and God has done amazing things through the lives of Christians even when they have been lived in the margins of society. Uh, and so don't be discouraged. You know, God has done 
truly amazing things while his people have lived faithfully in the margins in every area, era. Um, Flannery O'Connor, anyone know who Flannery O'Connor is? You people need to read more. Okay, Jacob knows. All right. Uh, Flannery O'Connor has this, this quote about what, what being a Christian is like when, being, uh, when you're in the minority. Uh, she said, uh, quasi-quoting Jesus, she says, You will know the truth, and the truth will make you odd. Um, the truth will make you odd. Um, so I've got two short things to mention, and then we'll be finished here. And the first is this. Uh, lately, there's been a, a lot... Um, about how to respond to Syrian refugees. Anyone see anything on this? And we've all come to one final conclusion together and agreed on it and been loving towards each other, and it's been awesome, right? Uh, no. I think the thing that we've, we've found, and you know, what's been most clear to me is that um, there are people whom I greatly respect, and I've seen them land on very far uh, sides of this issue. And I mention here because... Because really, I have a hope for how we as Christians respond. And I don't mean over the decision whether, whether our government should let them in or not. Um, my hope is this, that whether you are for it or against opening our doors to these refugees, I, I hope that uh, if or, or when they are, they are let in, uh, if you meet some of these people here in town, if you encounter them at the grocery store or anywhere else, whenever you face these people face to face, that you will let go of any bitterness that you have towards politicians or, or politics or policies or anything of that nature, uh, that you let go of that. My hope is that, uh, you know, if they're Christians, that they'll be welcomed by us as brothers and sisters who are redeemed by the same blood of Christ. I also hope if, if they're Muslim, that they're going to meet Christians who will smile at them. But the first thing they see is not proving everything they've heard about Christians, but that would show them, you know, a, a loving disposition towards them and, and one that understands that they need the gospel. You know, I hope they see the love of Christ sustains us even in our fear, and that we're going to hold out this hope to them, to those that, that we may consider enemies, knowing that we too were once enemies of God. That's, that's what I hope we can get clear in our mind, regardless of where you are on the, on the first aspect of that, whether they should be or not. Uh, and the last thing is this. At, at the beginning, I, I told you about Alexander, right? He's a Christian we don't know much about. In the second century, he's being mocked for his beliefs in a crucified uh, Savior. But what I didn't mention is that it, when it was discovered in the next room over, there was another piece of uh, graffiti or an inscription that was discovered. It was, it was in different handwriting, and that one read uh, Aleximinios Fidelius. Um, that's Latin or butchered Latin of some sort uh, for Alexander is faithful. And I love that because he might have felt so alone in the world at that moment when he was being mocked by those around him for his faith. Um, but alas, he was faithful. And he was never alone. Uh, he was always and will always be a part of the people of God, even in the midst of great persecution. You know, the, the Lord has given us himself, but he's also given us an eternal family, even in those moments. Um, let that be a, a, a wonderful encouragement to us. Let's pray. Lord, please remove our fear of living in the margins. Uh, make us to trust you. Make us to trust the power of your hands, uh, both over this current and future history. Give us faith to believe your word and the rest in the gospel, even when or if we're mocked, even if we're threatened for our faith. Thank you for your word and the way that, that we see persecution serve as the, the seed-scattering tool for the fulfillment of the Great Commission.
Lord, we desire in this city the great joy that we read about in that city of Samaria. So make us bold to, to see opportunities to speak, or not to feel guilty when we fail, but to just be free to speak about you and your goodness. May you grant that we find our joy in you and not in our privileged place among a privileged culture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.